We can't do spiritual battle in someone else's armor. Hello, this is the Adventure Through the Bible podcast. My name is Matt. Joining me today is Eric. That's me. And Tracy. Morning. And Karen. Hello. How's it going? Karen, can you hear me? What? Karen. I can hear you through one ear. (laughs) (laughs) I thought, you know, for a change, I'd poke a little fun at Karen. Yeah, no, let's do that. Let's do that one where Matt pokes fun at me. No, you're, you're, you had your surgery, though, and things sort of went well, right? Things sort of went well. They did not. I will have to go back for another one. They were not able to do the full reconstruction, but they did a whole lot of work. A whole lot of work. They rearranged stuff and drilled stuff out and scraped stuff away, and oh my goodness. So, yes, the, <laughs> the inside of the right side of my head has been fully rearranged and stitched into place, and I am feeling every bit of it. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I just I find it all. I huh? find it all kind of fascinating because I don't know. I mean, messing around. I mean, the, the inside your ear is so small, you know. Yeah, and, exactly. And you know, the last time you had this done, you told us that you hadn't even been able to hear out of that ear for ten years. Ten years. Yeah. And then being able to hear again. I mean, it's just it's just kind of it's miraculous to me. The things. Yeah, I, I still do. can't hear. <laughs> it'll take the it'll take yeah. the other surgery before they. Yeah. But anyway, things are looking up. Let's get into our discussion today. We uh, we ended up last week. We we're in First Samuel, and as you recall, uh, Samuel had been named the first king of Israel, and things started out kind of good. And oh, then Samuel Samuel uh, anointed and it's Saul. Saul. Thank you. Right. See, this is why I have a team because <laughs> my mouth says things that my brain isn't thinking. <laughs> Saul. <laughs> Strike that, reverse it. Saul <laughs> was named the first king of Israel, and things started out okay, and then kind of rapidly went downhill as Saul just kept making bad decision after bad decision, and it ended up with Samuel then just kind of mourning the whole idea of, of Saul as king, but yet still, uh, still praying for him, still... Uh, how does it put it? It says he, he mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. And so that's where we left it off last week, was that that this whole idea of this king just was not really what should have been happening in Israel, not what was supposed to happen in Israel. And, and uh, Saul did a really good job of proving the point. And so we begin in chapter 16 now, where <laughs> God is talking to Samuel. And he says, how long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? I thought that's kind of an interesting, poignant thought to start with today when when it's decided that uh, there needs to be a change of leadership, whether you you like the current leadership or not, and when it's going to happen, how long do you... uh, how long do you continue to lament over the fact that uh, the other guy is not there anymore? <laughs> you I know, I think it's a good testament, though, to how um, 
Samuel was all into it because at first, if you remember, he was kind of offended when they wanted a king. And God yeah. said, hold on, they're not doing this against you. They're doing it against me. And then by the time we get here, now Samuel's totally crushed that it didn't work out. So to me, it's like he started there knowing that, okay, this is not what what God wants. And I feel it's personally against me to still being, I'm going to pray for him. I'm going to do everything I possibly can. And then in the end, he's still like, this didn't work out. And he's, you know, he's down and, and depressed about it. And God has to say, okay, how long are you going to do this? We, we still got work to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's a good point too. You know, we, uh, Samuel knew from the beginning that Saul, that the, just the whole idea of a King wasn't great. But then Saul obviously just proving the point. But Samuel continued to to pray for the guy, you know, I suppose in the hopes that he would do well. Because when your leader does well, the nation does well, you know. So it doesn't make any sense to to hope that your current leader is going to fail. It's a pretty self-destructive wish. It has always baffled me that that was – I mean, and that's – we see there's some interesting um, dynamics as we as we go forward in today's reading and as well as we read into the future about that kind of that. I guess it would be summed up as the unselfish wishes for the benefit of others. We see that contrasted between Saul and David. We don't get through all of that today, but we see their behavior and we see who's looking out for what and who. You know, who does Saul put first? Who does David put first? Right. So God sends Samuel to a guy named Jesse, who now we may have, you may recall. Well, we haven't really talked about Jesse before, but if you're familiar with the Bible, this isn't a new name to your, to your ears, probably. But he says, I'm going to send you to Jesse in Bethlehem. He says, because I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel gets a little worried about it because he doesn't know how Saul is going to take this. But God says, you know what? Just take a sacrifice with you. I want you to go and you're going to invite Jesse and I'm going to show you who to anoint. So basically, stop worrying about this. I've got this I've got this in hand. You know, it's interesting. We've talked about this, about the, how uh, Sam's, Samson's mother and so on, and we compare that to Mary <clears throat> as like, and, Abraham, and Sarah is like, God promises this thing, and then everybody says, well, how? When? How's it? And it's interesting. God sums it up here in verse 1. He says, take your stuff and go. Yep. I'll, un- I'll unfold it as it happens. I mean, this is we're talking to Samuel, who's been talking to God personally since he was a child. And to me, part of it is like, oh, man, can't you like unfold the whole thing? Uh, make yeah. it a little more obvious. I mean, good grief. He unfolded the whole thing to Saul. First, you're going to meet these people. And they're going to say this. Then you're going to meet these people. And they're going to be going this direction, carrying a basket and bread. And he just spelled it all out. And to Samuel, he just says, go. You know, and I think, too, it says exactly how how far Saul had, had fallen at this point. Because even Samuel was like, he'll kill me. Yeah. If he knows what I'm doing, he'll kill me. You know, and I think that speaks mm. volumes to exactly where Saul was at at that point in time. Yeah, yeah, not in a not in a good place. When Samuel comes into Beth- Bethlehem, he gets greeted with an interesting 
I don't know. The situation is interesting because they, they the first thing they ask him is, do you come peaceably? And they trembled yeah. at, when he got there. And I'm thinking, <laughs> okay, was it usually not a great sign if the prophet shows up in your town? You know, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Once upon a time, I heard, um, <laughs> I don't know. Some people were complaining that a pastor hadn't been to visit them in a while. And, and the pastor said, you know, if the pastor feels a need to come visit you, you might not be in a good place. <laughs> yeah, we you don't know. know what ended up happening here. But yes, that is a fascinating. It, it reminds me of my days living in the dormitory. Um, I'd get a knock on the door and it was the Dean. And I'd be like, so how much does he know? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm just going to say I have repented from that life of crime. <laughs> but I'm we not going to assume the Bethlehemites, but I can certainly understand where they might have been coming from. But uh, <laughs> anyway, Samuel, Samuel com- comes in and says, no, I come in peace and I'm going to bring a um, I'm going to bring a sacrifice and not really tell all the other business. And there's a verse in here because the story goes that um, Samuel asks Jesse to bring all of his sons before they start the banquet and line them all up. And Samuel's going to look, look, look them all over for something. Well, I mean, I'm sure they knew something was up. Right. And it's very interesting that this this story from chapter 16, verse six through uh, 13 there's a lot of narrative in in this week's reading, which is not always the case. Sometimes we don't get details in the story at all from whatever it is. In this this week's reading, there's a lot of details. There's a lot of narrative. I would encourage our listeners, if you haven't read what we're discussing for Samuel 16 to 20, to read it. Because there's a lot of very famous Bible stories in here. And it reads like a story. It's, it's more like a story than a collection of just historical facts or theological points. A lot of details. We're not going to cover every one of those. But it's really interesting, and I remember this from studying Bible, you know, even as a kid, is they line them all up, and Samuel looks at, I think it's Eliab, right? Who's, um, he's old, and he's tall, and he's he's good-looking. And God says this really interesting thing, that they line them all up, and... This is verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance. This is talking about Eliab. Or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. Man slash woman looks on the outward appearance. But the Lord looks on the heart. And that is a, man, We I mean, we have entire industry entire industry segments built on looking on the outward appearance. I mean, we're talking billions and billions of dollars of the world economy is based around looking on the outward appearance. And it's fascinating that God cuts right through that, but the Lord looks on the heart. And I want to digress for just a second, not a digress, but just say, you know, there was a story, a child story that I read um, years and years ago, it was about it was about the judgment, you know, in in uh, the idea of, of being judged by God um, at the end of time, and how we each stand before the throne of God. And the story went that there was there was a little old lady who really wasn't very special in the community, 
And there was a man who was in the community. He was a big shot and he, he was rich and he did all these amazing things and people, but he didn't have much character. He was actually a, a kind of a, a nasty guy in character, but, and then the woman was very upright in stature, not in stature, I'm sorry, but in, in character. And we, we're watching this scene in the judge. This is just, this is, a, this is a metaphorical story. Okay. This isn't any literal thing. And the viewers watch this. And before the, before the judgment throne, this, this man who on earth was, everybody held him in high esteem. He shrinks down to be this tiny little person. And everybody's like, Whoa, what's that about? And then the woman comes before the throne and she grows to be this giant. And people say, wow, what's that? And, and an angel says, this is how God would look at them. You always looked at the outside and you made the judgments based on what they looked like and how much money they had and all the things they had. But that's not how God sees people. He sees their character. And as a kid, that really struck me. I mean, again, it's a, it's a parable. It's not a literal story, but it really struck me in this is that the Lord looks on the heart. And I think that's a crux as we're looking at David is that it's his heart to keep turning back when he does wrong because he does wrong. David does plenty of wrong things, but it's more about how he turns his heart in repentance versus Saul's not turning in repentance than it is about the things that they do. Because let's be honest, both of them do some really cool things. Both of them do some really bad things. Well, Jesse's sons get brought up one by one. And like you said, it started with Eliab and God says no. And then um, I think the next one is, was it Abinadab? And again, it's no. And it goes through one by one, brings up seven different sons and all of them are no. Eventually, it's like, well, do you have any others? Like, well, David is out keeping the sheep. You know, David is like the the kid, the the, the, the youngest. Because we don't really know how old he is here, but David is the one who gets chosen by God. And that's that's not really a spoiler alert. We all kind of knew that was going to happen. We've all heard of David, and um, <clears throat> it says that the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. And in the very next verse is yep. the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Yep. That, that, that was interesting. And it's not as if, you know, there's only so much spirit to go around, but it's pretty clear that a choice has been made. There is a line drawn and David is the guy and Saul is not, although David doesn't take the throne at this point. Yeah, it's an important it's, note because as we go forward, it'll talk about a spirit, a, a bad spirit coming on Saul. Mm-hmm. And if we miss this part, we might think God is doing this to Saul. But this makes it very clear that the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of the Lord is gone from Saul. Saul does not have God's spirit at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think it was kind of a situation of when you know when he did have the spirit that? There wasn't room for anything else. Hundred percent. Um, yeah, because Jesus tells this story in the New Testament. He said there was a person who was who had um, an evil spirit, and he somehow this evil spirit gets cast out, and it goes wanders through all these, you know, desolate lands, and comes back and finds the place swept and clean and vacant. 
And mm. so move in with more spirits. And it's a bit of a shocking story. You can look that up. But yeah, I think absolutely so. If we if we say, I'm gonna go it on my own, this is and this is the thing is that Paul in the New Testament writes about like this is this is a battle of this is a spiritual battle. And I think that, that would we would do well these days in a contemporary way to think about what we're dealing with. I don't care if it's political or economic or uh, pandemic or healthcare. These things ultimately are spiritual battles. We, we keep this in mind. And Saul and David are making their choices, and their choices have results. So, like Eric said, this distressing spirit is the way it's put in my Bible comes on Saul and in an interesting turn of events David is sent for somebody's heard about David at this point already so he's sent for to come in and play harp for Saul to kind of chill him out and uh, Jesse sends him with some gifts and David becomes Saul's armor bearer and whenever Saul feels down David Plays his, plays his harp for him. It's just a, I don't know, it's such an interesting it's interesting situation here where essentially the replacement is there to help the, what do I want to call it, incumbent? To, outgoing. Um, <laughs> what's that? The outgoing uh, ruler? Yeah. Just you know, kinda... but I, was, I was looking at some supplemental reading this week too, and the thing is I think sometimes that we miss is that David was anointed. He already knew a little bit of what his future held. Yeah. But he went right back to the sheep. Yeah. Yeah. You know, can you imagine that? Somebody telling you, hey, you know what? Let's just say, you know, you win the lottery or something like that, and now you're a millionaire. Oh, by the way, go ahead and go back to your regular job for just a little bit and wait Mm -hmm. while you get the money. You know, it's like usually it automatically goes to your head, but what happens? This ruddy person that's, you know, and a lot of times we think of David as, you know, okay, he was maybe short in stature, ugly guy, whatever. But it says God said he was good looking. Yeah. He was just out in the field working, tending sheep to be brought up and said, you know what? You're going to be the next king. Oh, and by the way, uh, go ahead and go back and watch the sheep for a while. Well, yeah. I thought it was going to be king, you know, and it didn't change his his day to day. Yeah, it is interesting. David, he he rises to the occasion as it's placed on him, but he never really seems to have an ambition for it, which maybe makes him a better leader. Yeah, it's interesting. I I it occurred to me or through some through through some other reading too, is it notice that this whole time David is basically kind of interning in the court. And nobody <laughs> knows it. It's like he gets a free internship on a music scholarship and while he's there, he's He's learning all about how the government works, and nobody pays any attention to the fact that this kid is there learning all this stuff that he will later use. It's like this totally undercover boss. I mean, you talk about, like, you, I I just think, what are the odds that that would happen that way? And I think it's beyond just odds that God placed him there, and he gets to learn and see, hey, this is what Saul does well, this is what Saul does poorly. Exactly. All of these things he can use later. Ah, it's fascinating to me. You know, and I, I look at that too, and I think it's a good example of exactly what you said of he gets to look at the whole overview. What's done good, what's what's being done poorly, 
in that, okay, you know, maybe even to the point of what is Saul's relationship with God at that point? You know, to make sure I don't go there in the future, or maybe I don't get caught up in so much self and always am looking towards God, where on the other hand, Saul is just like, Saul's in a bad place. Well, chapter 17 gives us one of the most famous stories of the Bible. I, don't, I can't imagine. Gosh, I don't know. I'm, does anybody not know this story? I mean, it seems like very few people, you know, especially it's in Western culture. in society even. Yeah. Yeah. It's like everybody's heard the story of David and Goliath. And it starts out with Israel and the Philistines are facing off for battle. Because apparently, I mean, the Philistines just never seem to ever go away. <clears throat> and... um but they're facing off a battle, and this big dude, Goliath, comes out, and he sets out a challenge for a one-on-one -on -one fight. Winner takes all. Now, Goliath, I mean, you know, he's always referred to as a giant. And if you're curious about what that means, uh, you do the math. Six cubits in a span, it says, works out to about nine foot nine, so nearly ten feet tall. He's got a coat of mail that weighs... A little over 125 and a half pounds. So. <laughs> it's like wearing me. It's like my entire body weight in a coat of mail. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, just the head of his spear is 15 pounds. So, yeah. I mean, this it's, is not a little dude. I don't remember. Anybody know how tall Andre the Giant was? That was a pretty big guy. He wasn't. I don't think he was that tall. But he was he was big. I mean, I've seen pictures of Andre the Giant and Wilt Chamberlain and Arnold Schwarzenegger all together on a set of one of the Conan movies, which Whoa. Andre was, Andre wasn't in it. But it makes Arnold Schwarzenegger look like a little kid. <laughs> it's just a, it's just the funniest thing to see these other guys so big, you know, and, and Goliath. <laughs> Goliath is clearly he's not just tall because, I mean, you've seen we've seen things of guys who get really tall and they're usually really skinny and frail um right where this guy is huge and strong i mean like you said karen wearing a karen coat <laughs> <laughs> so the the current world record i'm looking at the interwebs here the current world record for the tallest man who's ever lived well <clears throat> that we've been tracking is a guy named robert pershing wadlow from yep. Illinois, he was eight foot eleven, but mm. had a wingspan of nine feet five inches. Oh man, big arms, long arms, wow. and he's about as spindly as it gets. Like it looks like anybody could take him. Yeah, yeah. So generally speaking, when we see when we see people tall like that, they're not. It's they're they're sort of out of proportion, you know. They don't seem right. And I don't picture Goliath this way. I picture him probably pretty beefy. I mean, we're probably not talking, you know, cut with abs and stuff like that. But, you know, naturally strong. Have you ever known some people you shake their hand and you can just feel their natural strength in their hands? And you know that, you know, you don't want to get into a into a fight with this dude because they'll probably squash you. Yeah, so yeah. This, he's, he's from Gath. And Gath shows up again several times and yeah. gath is known as having giants this is back when um i believe it was caleb or joshua actually took part of their land and fought giants way back in the conquest of of uh, israel now when when caleb took his land he when he was 80 something remember this he, yeah. he 
he killed them all in in his area. But there were other people in Israel who were like, oh, they were too scared to do this. And so this little pocket of giants remained. It shows up again and again. I've got a note that in First Chronicles 25, uh, uh, chapter 20, verse 5, there are others in Gath. There is even another Goliath named giant, <clears throat> giant named Goliath. And this Goliath apparently had relatives uh, that show up later. I don't know if they were brothers or uh, cousins, but, and this is important, is that he wasn't the only one. And uh, yeah, we'll get to that other part in a little bit. He's a super, super, super big guy. And what's really interesting here is when he comes out, and this is in verse eight, he stood out and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come up to, to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Okay, we're talking about identity here. And this is key, and this is the part about the story of David and Goliath that doesn't get told in popular culture. Goliath says, am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? See, the Israelites have decided to say, we want a king. We're going to be servants of a king. Yay. Well, guess what? That's how the people are, because they said, we want to be like everybody else. Well, now everybody else identifies them as servants of Saul. Uh. Instead of servants of God. This, Interesting. This is the crux of the whole thing. Goliath is like, I'm big, I'm strong, I come from a fighting family, I'm a Philistine. You guys are just servants of Saul. And Saul's servants, including David's brother, see themselves as servants of Saul. Mm-hmm. David shows up on the picture on the scene, and he's like, no, 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 I am a servant of God. You're a Philistine. I am a chosen of God. The Philistine says, my God's blah, blah, blah. And David said, yeah, your God, watch this, because my God. Anyways, that, that gets down just a little bit um, further into the story. But let's not forget that Israel chose their identity, and everybody else said, sure, okay, that's who you are. Own it. Mm. Mm. Yeah, well, yeah, so this challenge that Goliath throws down here is basically one-on-one fight, winner takes all. If I kill your guy, you guys will serve the Philistines. If you kill me, the Philistines will serve the Israelites, which we'll see is not what happens. But um, there's a spoiler alert here, but uh, yeah, you know the story. Anyway, Saul and the army, Saul and his army are, they're afraid. Uh I don't know. They're afraid of Goliath. They're afraid of this other army. Chances are, it sounds like if this battle happens, the Israelites are not going to fare well here is kind of the way I'm taking this. And Jesse's three oldest sons, they had followed Saul into battle, which reminded me back um, in chapter eight when they were all warned, if you have a king, he's going to take your sons. Yeah. And... Jesse sends David to deliver some food to the brothers and bring back some news. And which is interesting here because it seems like David had this back and forth where he could leave Saul's court to go back and take care of the sheep, come back and play harp for Saul, back and forth. So that's yeah, just kind of an interesting freedom that he had seemed to have there by the way I was reading it. But as he shows up, it says the armies are shouting for battle. So it sounds like Sounds like the the actual fight is just about to start, and they've been they've been here for forty days looking at each other with 
with yeah. with um, Goliath coming out every day and making his challenge. And I guess I guess maybe they're just finally ready to get going on it. But he comes out. Goliath comes out again. He repeats the challenge, and this time David hears it, and he sees how afraid everybody is. And his reaction is kind of fascinating to me. He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So like you said, Eric, he is seeing, he's still seeing these armies as, or, you know, as Israel, I guess, as being special to God, not just a bunch of guys following a king. But his oldest brother, Eliab, he resents David's attitude which kind of reminded me way back with Joseph and his brothers, the way that his brothers looked down at him all the time. Mm-hmm. I think, too, you need to, we need to go back and understand that his brothers already knew he was going to be king, too. Well, they knew something was up. I'm not sure that they knew all the, the whole implications of all of this. I, we, we don't know because it's just we don't know. But I think, too, I look at his response. And it is. It, it was – you went after him personally right away. Yeah. Um, why did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? Mm-hmm. You know, so right away he was already cut into the chase with, with David. And it's like – you know, and, and when you go back up, I think that, too, you look at there was there was a profit to be made if you killed Goliath. Mm-hmm. That you're your family was going to go tax free. You get a marry into the family. You're pretty pretty much set up. So I think too. Not only was it, you know, David knew number one that he was going to be king. Number two, I think that he felt that the Israel um, army was chosen from God, and that too he's still looking after his family as well. Hmm. Well, David says to Saul, he goes, you know what? I will fight this guy. And and Saul is kind of taken back. He says, but you're, you're just a kid. And I, I like David's response here. He's like, I fought off lions and bears. I can take this guy. So seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. So he is still holding this. He's still holding this attitude. It seems like nobody else is. I mean, this guy is defying. This guy's defying God. Yeah. And and but but also he's like, I'm not coming totally unequipped. I I have I have fought off lions and bears. I've never fought off a lion or a bear, you know, <laughs> but, you know, you get the kind of the idea here that David is maybe not scrawny, but he's certainly not big. He's certainly not. I mean, he's not like he's running around carrying a sword and 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 all this stuff. But um, he, I love David's focus on on Goliath's insult of God. First of all, I think it's hilarious that. It's it's such an example of human nature that he resorts to calling him an uncircumcised Philistine because <laughs> that's so that's so human to be like, well, I mean, he's this and I'm that. It's like, really, you'd pick that detail as an insult, you no, know? See, it just that's a spiritual thing to him, though. I know. That, that's that that carries a lot a lot of meaning to you are insulting because that was that was the. the that was kind of the point that riled up David is that you're insulting God yeah, for you. And that was the, you know, a defining characteristic, which I'll agree with you is a rather odd point to make. 
Mm-hmm. And it, it actually, I had to chuckle when I was reading that because my father, my father used to refer to me as stiff-necked and uncircumcised, which <laughs> it, it took me years to, to sort of grasp that. But anyway. Um, was, um, Dad, there's something you need to know. Just a little <laughs> chuckle as I was reading that. I kept hearing my, my father's voice. It was like, well. You know, stiff-necked and uncircumcised, and 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 finally, at one point, my brother and I were like, "Okay, wait a second, let's think this through." What? Anyway, <laughs> but I loved, I loved David's focus on, like, no, like I'm going to go take this guy. He has insulted God, and he, that is not allowed to happen. And then mm. when he goes out there, it's the same way. It's like, no, you've insulted God, and God is going to give you to me. Yeah, it's yeah. The- it's the Lord. And, he, and even even in his precursor in 37, David said, it was the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. And he'll deliver me from this Philistine. Mm-hmm. And so that's where David's got his focus. Saul's focus is on armor. He's like, oh, okay. Um, mm-hmm. Why don't you try my armor out? And this is where we see that Saul is, in fact, taller and bigger than everybody else. It doesn't fit David. And David says... There's a comment, it's not David said it, but there's a comment that says, and he, tr- he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Yeah. And we, and I've said this before, I've spoken on this as a message, we can't do battle in someone, we can't do spiritual battle in someone else's armor. You can't. Mm-hmm. You can't. Yeah. You can't move forward against obstacles in your parents' armor. You can't go forward against your armor obstacles and challenges in your pastor's armor in your favorite author's armor now you can be informed by those you can you they can steer you towards god <clears throat> they can give you insights but ultimately you go forward with your armor your experience and see remember david he doesn't step forward in this in this in a presumptuous way like gosh well i've never fought anything before I don't have any experience whatsoever, but sure, I'll go do this, and I'm going to do it on my own. Mm. He doesn't do this. He he has experience. He has tested his armor, so to speak, and and he he ends up taking off the um, the armor of someone else. He doesn't put his faith in any of that. So it says David took him off. He took his staff in his hand and he chose five smooth stones. That's really interesting. He picks what he's been used to. He he goes with what he has tried and tested and used. And those are his staff and sling. And he picks up five stones. And I am proposing that David did not plan to miss four times. David planned to take down five giants that day. Mm. He was going to kill them all because we find out later that Goliath did in fact have relatives and they show up again in other places. David went forward. He, I don't think he had any doubt because when they get together, you know, as the story goes down, you know, they come together and and uh, Goliath shouts, oh, I'm going to kill you and feed you to the birds. And David comes back with this is, a, again, a really famous or should be famous quote. You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. I mean, you stack that up if you had a if you had a scale. Okay, so Goliath is, you know, ridiculously tall and huge, and he's wearing this much armor, and he's got a spear with a with a tip on it that weighs fifteen pounds and one hundred twenty five pounds of armor, and 
And, and David says, and a javelin and a sword. And David says, I come to you in a name. Man, if, if this was, this was a Las Vegas betting thing, I don't think anyone would bet on David. <laughs> no, but this isn't about that. And David says, you know, you skip forward. He says that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. This isn't about David from his mouth. And that all the assembly may know, and I imagine he's talking to the Israelites behind him too, that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, Mm -hmm. and he will give you into my hand. Mm -hmm. And then right after he says this speech, and I actually looked this up because I found it so fascinating, and the Philistine arose and drew near to David, and David ran quickly. I actually have looked up that original, the words right there, and the Hebrew actually indicates ran with lightning speed toward. Mm. Can you so imagine what that felt like? I think I can picture that. You know, this Goliath is like, he's kind of, he's he's walking forward and he's like, Wah! and David just goes like, he is just straight at it. He is he is running at a, at a sprint and he closes that ground and David gets a lot closer than Goliath thinks he's going to get to a lot faster than he gets thinks he's going to get to David has no he he's not even stopping i mean you need slow mo to see this mm. and david just before goliath knows what's going on it's bam and lights out for goliath david probably doesn't even stop and goliath hits the ground about the time david draws his goliath sword out and kills it and it's over can you imagine the shock on the Philistine side? They probably all just dropped a load of bricks right there on the ground. And the Israelites were like, what? Awesome. And the, the Philistines were, can you imagine the adrenaline punch in the gut that that was to the Philistines? Mm. Yeah, it is one of the one of the greatest, I mean, just you describing it here. I mean, I'm sort of getting a chill running up my spine just thinking of David sprinting towards Goliath and this army and he's like whatever's going to happen is going to happen and and with a with a confidence that that uh you know this is going to this is just going to go well and nobody's expecting what he's going to do and I mean this is the kind of stuff you see in movies now you know and when somebody you just don't you you have no concept that this guy's uh, uh capable of anything here and yeah and yeah sprinting full on and then chucks that that rock and bang right in, right in the forehead and yeah doesn't even stop knocks him over but and, and just grabs his kills him with his own sword i mean there's an insult too david went and didn't even have didn't even have a sword you know and and uh takes him out kills him cuts his head off oh yeah what a scene karen, karen just shared the pictures of, that i was talking about with with uh, Schwarzenegger, with Andre the Giant, and Will Chamberlain, it's they're hilarious. If you get a chance to look them up, they're funny. But um, it's because Schwarzenegger's not a little dude. Right. Right. <laughs> look, he looks small in those pictures. Yeah, he does. <laughs> Andre the Giant, seven foot four, man. But yeah, what a scene. And uh, oh, it's it's just it's just awesome. It is just awesome. You know- and, and the sound of the rock probably hitting hitting Goliath's head, it mm. said that it, it killed him. But David finishes it off, and that's when the rest of the Philistines flee. When when the head is gone, it's it's pretty much over. 
but it says there that he killed him. So I can only imagine how it, that sounded. The thud of that hitting his head. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah. This big field. And, and I, I could imagine when people probably got really quiet waiting to see what was going to happen. And then when things actually actually go down, I just I would have could think this the guys on the Philistine side just being completely stunned by what they just saw. And probably on the Israelite side too, because <laughs> nobody's expecting this thing. And oh right. my gosh, what a scene. I mean it's just it's just I don't know. It's it's got my adrenaline up right now. It's pretty cool. <laughs> Enough to annoy his three older brothers for the rest of their lives. Mm. But that's a, there's a thing, I mean my son is uh, almost 12 and he, he likes playing video games with a, and to hear the tough talk that comes out of this little 12 year old, like, dude, <laughs> just, you're just talking tough. You're 12, man. <laughs> and David, who I'm sure is much older than 12 at this point. Um, he's, he, he removes all doubt about talk. People can say, Oh, you talk. It's like, well, okay. Yeah. But then David actually delivered this stuff but david again this isn't about david this is about god it's about god's honor for the battle is the lord's and think about this this is basically a repeat in in a microcosm a tableau as we would call it in as english teachers of israel coming out of egypt they don't really have any skills they are outsized they are outgunned they they really don't have anything to recommend them to win and this is the it's the sad thing is that Israel at this point is looking at their their few weapons that they have and the, all the weapons that the other guys have. And David is the one who sees this isn't about swords and armor. And this is about the Lord, the Lord's honor and who he chose us to be. It's it's really not that different. And it's. It is. It is. It's a. It's a. It's a cool and exciting story as it is. But it gives me pause because I realize, man, what about how do I act when I face the Goliaths in my life? Do I look at what they have versus what I have, or am I looking to God and saying, "I can't do this. This isn't about me." What would you? What do you want to do? Because David says this, and again, it's an awesome quote. It's kind of like Jonathan's, like, well, who knows whether the God. You know what God will do, but God can save with many or with few. You know, and mm-hmm. I think too that we kind of look at this, and once again, it kind of goes back to Saul again at the end. So David cuts the head off. David takes the head back to Jerusalem. He keeps uh, Goliath's armor for himself. But then we see Abner, the commander of the army, um, talking with Saul, and go. And Saul goes, "Who is this kid?" Yeah, that was odd to me. And Abner goes, you know what? I don't know. But before this, we see that David's been playing the liar in his court. Yeah. So once again, you see Saul looking over the obvious because he's stuck to me in self and really departed from God. He didn't even know who David was and he was in his court sitting next to him, calming his soul when he is, you know, when he was at his worst, you know, even to the point of who's your father? Where do you come from? He knew nothing about David. He was a, just totally oblivious to what was going on. Yeah, that was sort of baffling to me. It's like this guy, this kid has been right next to you all this time, and you just, you don't even know who he is. 
To me, that would be almost like an insult that you're standing in his court. He should know you. And then he walks up and goes, who are you, by the way? Yeah. Oh, I actually assumed that it was told out of chronological sequence. I guess it's possible. I don't know. So this reminded me, there were two two things that came to mind when I was reading through this. One was the in the in the story of Daniel where there's Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and they end up in the thrown into the furnace to die and and they they say to the king before that like our our god can deliver us if he doesn't that's that's his choice we'll still worship him but our god can deliver us from anything you do to us and it was just like that utter utter unquestioning confidence and then the other thing that came to mind was one of my favorite passages in the Bible is in Second Chronicles 20, and it's the prayer of Jehoshaphat when Israel is again outsized and outgunned, and the Moabites and the Ammonites are coming against them, and he gives this prayer, and he ends it with, God, we have no power to face this multitude that is coming against us. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Mm-hmm. So there's like zero faith in humanity. All of it's focused on God, just like Okay, we're here. You're our God. You're our leader. You're our king. What are you going to do? Let's watch. Through all of this, somewhere along the line, David and then Saul's son, Jonathan, become really good friends, like inseparable friends. It's like, you, you, you know, probably you see one, you see the other one all the time. Jonathan even gives David his own armor and sword. And David comes under the service of Saul goes wherever Saul tells him. He does whatever Saul tells him. And it says that David behaved wisely, and everybody loves David. And coming back from a particular battle, I guess with Saul, I think David and Saul were together at this time, and some women come out to meet them, and they're singing singing a song, and they say, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul does not take kindly to this because he can see that people's uh, opinions are turning more to David. They're still seeing Saul as as king and something special, but David is like something really special. This guy, David, is becoming legendary, and and Saul doesn't really like that. Uh, In fact, to the point where he tries to kill David a couple of times yeah. here and um, well, more than that, but right away, I mean, a couple of times. It's interesting that, that um, I, I think in Karen, you, you've studied this stuff way more than I have. Um, but so, so uh, correct me if I'm wrong or pitch in what we see here too, is a, is a more filled out picture of Saul's character through what Saul does. We see that at first he feels unworthy to be king, and then somewhere along the line, he 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 be, he well, he becomes king, and he becomes prideful. He puts himself first, and he just acts according to his own will. Like he, he I mean, he sacri- he he creates. I should say, he performs a sacrifice that he should not have performed at all, and that is part of why the kingship was taken from him. So he has this pride. His pride is injured here in um, chapter 18, verse 7, when we see to 8, I mean, he just flat out says it in verse 8. They have ascribed to David 10,000, and they've ascribed thousands. What more can he have? With the whole kingdom? 
Right. And saw the I, David, from that day on. So we have pride. We have insecurity. And he covers that up with pride. And then he, his pride is insulted and he becomes jealous. And his jealousy turns to anger. And all of these things, I would propose, is because Saul is looking at Saul. He's looking at, well, how do other people see me? How do other people look at me? We get no hint that David looks at the world this way. <clears throat> David's not looking at the world like, well, I wonder what they think of this. I wonder what they think of me. Well, I wonder if they like this shirt. You know, what do they think of these shoes? That we get the idea, I do anyways, that David's not even thinking about that. There's no hint of that. But we get over and over that Saul is consumed by this. What do people think about me? What do people think about my reputation? What do, and it's, it is a downward spiral that Saul gets into when he becomes self-absorbed which at the core of this is insecurity. It is. And if you look, and I, I think if you look back to how Saul started, you know, hiding among the supplies, like, hey, where's Saul? Of, what was he? Where's he? Kish? Was it Kish? You know, where's Saul? Bring him out. And, and he's like, and he's hiding. Like, that, that's, so the insecurity never really leaves him. It just takes on different forms as his role changes. That's kind of the way I saw it. And David is just so... I mean, he's out there with the sheep and, you know, the sheep don't, the sheep aren't impressed with him. Right. You know, mm -hmm. he just does his thing. There's nobody out there to observe his day-to-day -day behavior. And, and if it, if it wasn't for him self-reporting, we never would have known about the lions, tigers, and bears or whatever it was. You know, he just, he just, he's, he's just out there on his own. And it's, and it says, you know, that one of the reasons Goliath was so furious was that he looked and saw that David was little more than a boy. Like he's young and, and it just, he's just used to functioning out on his own and taking care of ungrateful, stupid animals and fighting off the predators that come for them with no one there to observe what he does and tell him he did great. He just, he's just a self-sufficient, unself-conscious kid. There's a ton in that. Yeah, I would say you know, our listeners rewind what Karen said here because that's really important. Think about how that impacts David's kingship. His preparation has led him like Moses. Any surprise that they are shepherds? I don't yeah. think so. Jesus uses this metaphor over and over. Uh, other writers in the New Testament do too. They refer to pastors as shepherds. That's not actually a super compliment to the congregation. <laughs> <laughs> Psalm 23, written by David, who would know this better? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Yes. He makes me do this. He makes me do that. He provides for me this way. He provides for me that way. He leads me everywhere I need to go. I mean, who would know that better than David? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the narrative continues in 18. There's a lot of stuff. I'd encourage your listeners to, to read it because there's a lot of story that goes on here. Saul pursues David. Saul makes promises like, oh, I'll, I'll let you marry into my family if you do this. And Saul's a liar. He doesn't keep his word. Mm -hmm. And then he tries to get David killed by making another prom a challenge for, for David. But David, again, he's looking at, at God and David successful ends up marrying into Saul's family, which I can only imagine how absolutely furious that would have made Saul. It's like, I'm going to set a trap and I know he's going to fail. And then David doesn't fail, and he ends up marrying into the family. He's like, ah, he's one step closer, not one further away. 
<laughs> yeah, not only doesn't fail, but exceeds like double of what yeah. the challenge was. Yeah. So we see we go forward again. This is n- this is not a mystery, and this is a, a. I will point out again. This is a spiritual battle we see going on here. This isn't a p- political rivalry. This is a spiritual thing. And in chapter eighteen, verse twenty-eight. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, Saul was more afraid of David. So yeah. this this isn't Saul about saying, "Ah, oh, you know what? God chose you, so let's let you do this, man." I mean, the, the country and me and my family we can only be good if we get in line with what God's plans are. But Saul doesn't do that. He sets himself up intentionally to try to frustrate God's plans. Yeah, you know, in doing that, it's like he keeps he keeps setting David up for success more and more. Yeah. The more he tries to push David into failure, David just keeps showing over and over that God picked the right guy. Yeah, every time. Mm-hmm. Well, in chapter 19, then, Saul really kind of turns up, turns things up. He gives instruction to Jonathan, his son, and his servants to kill David. But David, or I'm sorry, Jonathan decides he's going to warn David. He makes a plan to persuade Saul uh, from killing David. And Jonathan reminds Saul that David's actions have all been actually very good for Saul, for the kingdom. Mm -hmm. And if he would just, you know, pay attention to that, then, you know, things would would much be better. And eventually Saul says, okay, David will not be killed. And David's brought back to Saul, and everything seems good. But then we get into war again. David's defeating all the Philistines again. And Saul tries to kill David again. I don't remember. Does he throw his spear at him again here? I mean, it's just like... Yeah, he does that a couple of times. Saul's just got this temper that, that, man, I I wouldn't want to be in his court. You tick him off, and he chucks his spear at you, you know. David manages to escape. But then Saul send, he sends men to watch David's house and kill him. But but then uh, by now David has married Saul's daughter. Is it Michael? Is it I, didn't, I actually thought about that. We said, but you could pronounce it almost Michelle. Yeah. Michelle. I don't know which it is. I've heard. Yeah, I've heard it Michael, but it's not spelled the way you normally would 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 see it. But maybe Michelle. I don't know. Michelle. Oh. I mean, let's face it. We're not very good Hebrew scholars. No. <laughs> Uh, but she she helps him escape the house by lowering him through a window, and then she plays one of the, to us. It's like one of the oldest tricks in the book. She sticks a dummy in the bed, and um, so that when people come in, they they'll think it's they'll think it's David. But um, she does something odd here, though. When when she actually claims that David threatened to kill her if he didn't let her go, I guess she's just covering her own back at that point. Yeah. That's her dad. Yeah, he's expecting loyalty, and she's giving loyalty to his the person that he's trying to kill instead. Yeah, she's gonna have to tiptoe around that. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I about it. Yeah, I get I cut her a little slack there because because yeah, her dad's not a great dude. Um. So David ends up he goes he goes to stay with Samuel or he goes to visit Samuel, and they stay in Naoth and some it says messengers. They're sent to go take David. But they encounter this group of prophets led by Samuel. And this story gets a little weird here. They encounter this group of prophets led by Samuel. And what happens is they begin prophesying. And I, man, I, you know, 
I don't, I don't really understand what that means. I'd like to know a little bit more about what's happening here. But so this first group goes, they start prophesying. A second group goes, they start prophesying. A third group goes, they start prophesying. Saul decides to go himself, and he begins prophesying. Which, if we remember, I think didn't that is kind of the way his kingship began. Yeah, yeah. And so, but the the verse here is so weird. I got question marks all around my notes here. He he stripped off his clothes and prophesied. It's like, man, I just don't. I don't. I don't quite. I don't quite know what it means. I mean, I suppose, you know, there's probably speaking praises to God and, you know, just all kinds of things about who God is and what he expects from us and, and, and such. But these guys are going, the idea is they're all going to, to kill the next king, and instead they end up praising God. And it's almost like almost against their will. Yeah, and it's, this is, a, I think this is a, uh, it's a, it's another fascinating thing. Think back. Back to Israelites coming into the promised land, God very seldom delivers people the same way. He just doesn't. He's like, oh, this time, march around the city. This time, send just 3,000 people. This time, send the choir first. Now, this time, yeah, we're going to use 300 of you guys, get pitchers and lamps and trumpets. Yeah, let's do trumpets and lamps. <laughs> this, let's use a shepherd and a sling. That sounds cool. And, you know, I mean, it's just, you, you, you go through the whole Bible, it's like, Jonah, hmm, let's use the whale option. It's just, like, <laughs> where, where do you, the God is not limited in the way, and in this case, where there's another story where somebody comes to get one of God's prophets, a king sends him out, and the prophet calls down fire. And instead of the, instead of the soldiers being prophesying, they're just burned up, boom. And it happens again and again. And so this time, God's like, hmm, no, you're not going to just prophesy. Watch this. And <laughs> David is saved in the most unusual way. And I guess that goes, I'm saying this, I'm preaching to myself here, is that God has unlimited options as to what and how he can accomplish his purposes. Well, through all of this, Jonathan has stayed loyal to David. As, as, as much as Saul is against David, Saul's own son, Jonathan, is like totally into David. Interestingly, because generally, as we think of kings, Jonathan would have been the next king, and that is not the way this is working out. But um, David's telling Jonathan about how his dad's wanting to wanting to kill him, and Jonathan's like, what are you talking about? He's never said anything to me about this. And um, which is interesting. It's like, do you even know your dad? You know? Yeah, you know, but at the same time, this, this is a universal thing, the denial of what we don't want to admit the truth. Mm. I mean, uh, we, we've all done it. We've all believed in a thing or a person, and somebody says, hey, this is going down this way. And we're like, no, that, 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 that can't be because it contradicts our vision of what we want reality to be. I, and I mean, I know if, if somebody's thinking, oh, he's talking about so-and-so. I can say that with confidence because we've all done this at some point in, in our life now and in the past. And so Jonathan's the same way. He's like, no, that like my dad's not like that. My dad tells me everything. He would have told me if. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's a sad thing. I mean, in this case, he's not denying. He, he wants to believe the best part. Right. And it turns out not to be true. And 
it's interesting that David and Jonathan, they go back and forth. Again, a lot of narrative here. I'd encourage our listeners to read the narrative itself. But Jonathan comes to realize, okay, so maybe this isn't going to turn out this way and that you will be, my, my dad is, he's not acting like a good guy. And he's talking about the future. And this is in verse 14. I want to read this because I think it's interesting. Uh, I believe this is Jonathan speaking. If I am still alive when you're a king, Show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. Which shows up again, interesting. This isn't a passing promise. David takes this seriously. Yes. But Jonathan says this. When the Lord cuts off every one of your enemies. Like Jonathan has no doubt this is going to happen. He doesn't know how. He's just like, when God does what he says he's going to do, I just want you to promise to take care of me if I'm, if I'm alive and my descendants. Which, um, I don't know if anybody remembers the name Mephibosheth. Yeah. But yeah. we're coming up on a day when we'll get to see that happen, where there's a damaged uh, descendant of Saul still living, and David protects him and brings him into his own house and gives him a seat at his own table. Which isn't usually customary in that time, that when yeah, another no. takes over, he destroys everybody from the... Previous rule. Yeah, any any possible errors get destroyed, but not right. not with David. So uh, Jonathan finally is convinced that that Saul really does want David dead, and David departs. He he leaves Saul between some seat some secret signals. It's an interesting little story there, um, but uh, tells him to to go run away. And uh, but David and Jonathan they they still are at peace with each other. And that finishes what we're talking about in uh, Samuel specifically, but then we're the chronological reading then jumps into a couple of psalms here. You get into Psalm 11, and these, I am guessing, are written by David. In fact, I, I think um, we're pretty well told in them that they're written by David. Talks about yeah, both. Both of these say of David. Yeah, yeah, of David. Exactly. I'm trying to get to it here. Got to change the, change the channel. Um, yeah. And some of the Psalms will tell you <clears throat> that they were written in a, sp a specific occasion. A lot mm -hmm. of them don't. Um, and let's remember that David was very possibly writing these things long before he was king because he, was, he comes into, it's not like he's learning the harp when he comes into play for Saul. He's already an accomplished musician and he's singing things. And here's an interesting thing as we look at these Psalms is that it explicitly says in 1 Samuel that when David played and the Holy Spirit was present, the evil spirits couldn't be there. Hmm. It's like, you can't have both. And I think that has application to our life, too, is that if we, if we have a vacuum, we just say, no, I'm not going to have anything. I'm not going to have any good. I'm not going to have any bad. The, the, the saying, nature abhors a vacuum, is true. You, you can't have, I mean, I've worked with land a little bit. You can't clear land right. and just, just leave it dirt. It just doesn't stay as dirt. You're either going to have a good crop or you're going to have weeds. You, you can't have nothing. It's just not how it works. And I think we see in the stories of David and Saul and the spirits of God and the other spirits, there's not a, there's not a vacancy sign that, that ever hangs out. You got to choose which one you're going to put in. 
So David's been putting this stuff into his mind, into his heart, into his soul. He's been absorbing nature while he's working for years. Mm-hmm. And we can't, we can't miss that in the Psalms, that he's been out in nature for years, looking around and observing and absorbing this stuff. And some of the wisdom that comes from this is probably from those solitary times with God. Mm-hmm. Psalm 11, I just kind of put down some notes here as my uh, summary of it. He talks about having faith in God and basically, you know, how can I flee when the wicked are ready to attack? This seems to be his attitude when he was when they were all facing the Philistines and he was going up against Goliath. He, he saw this challenge in front of him. And like we talked about a lot, he was really recognizing that they were that they were very insulting towards God. And how can I run away from this? How can I, how can I just let this happen? Mm. Well, so he actually takes it into the grand scheme of right and wrong. Like in verse three, he says, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Mm -hmm. And then his, and then his own response to that question is the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes everyone on the earth. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. gets into a. The, well, just I'm just going to read it. He says um, he's on his throne. His eyes see. This is cha- this is Psalm 11, chapter four, um, second part of chapter four. His eyes, his eyes, eyelids. It says, test the children of men. Verse five. The Lord tests the righteous. Mm-hmm. There it is. Mm-hmm. But the and then and then it goes on like verse five reminded me of a passage in Matthew. It's part of the Sermon on the Mount, um, which I'll get to in a second. But I thought of it a number of times as I was reading all this stuff about Saul and Saul's sort of like insecure fall from God's chosen one to almost like a demented fool. You know, the uh, it says the Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. On the wicked, he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur and scorching wind will be their lot, right? And um, this gets tricky. This goes back to the man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. But in in Matthew 7, um, starting in verse 16, it says, By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Thus, by your, their fruit, you will recognize them. And that gets super tricky here on earth because we don't always have some guy in a terrible temper trying to throw a sword, a spear at us and pin us to the wall. Like that's, things aren't always that clear cut. Like we don't know. Like sometimes we can't figure out what somebody's fruit is, especially in modern society where, <clears throat> you know, thanks to the, the, the internet, we get bits and pieces. We get tiny glimpses of everything. We just don't know what's happening. And that's, and that's, and I just kept thinking, I kept thinking of that. And I kept thinking about how man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. But eventually there is like, God is in his holy temple. He is on his heavenly throne. He does see everything. And I think it's uh, Luke talks about how there is nothing hidden now that will not come out. Yeah. And it's, it's okay. It's in control and he'll sort it out. Yes, yeah, big theme. That's a really big theme of David's Psalms. I mean, like all of them is that 
there and David's he does a lot of like, oh, the wicked are after me, the wicked are doing how come the wicked are prospering? Yeah. But he always comes back to, you know what, God's gonna handle this. Yep. He doesn't say it's interesting it says in in, in, in uh, 11 5 but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence now david did plenty of fighting mm-hmm. but he didn't he didn't seek he didn't go after his enemies i mean to a fault he didn't go after his enemies sometimes he said you know i'm gonna let god handle this this is up to god to deal with i'm going to let god handle this and there's a very, very interesting thing that I heard from, um, is, 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 he's, a, he's a Christian commentator and teacher. His name is Ty Gibson. And he wrote a short essay, of The Myth of the Violent Savior. And I was like, whoa, that's kind of philosophical. He says, the world puts forward this idea that we're going to have a one-off who's going to come and, through violence, solve the problems that we have. I've just summarized all of the superhero and super cop and super detective movies that ever been made. Yeah, right. He said, and the gospel is the antithesis of that. Yeah. It is sacrificial. It is uh, others first. It mm-hmm. is putting things in God's hands and that God doesn't seek violence through, through these, through the way that we do. Again, God doesn't see it and do things the way that we do. It's a it is a complicated theme. It's not a it doesn't fit on a bumper sticker and apply the same way in all situations. But it's the thing to just put your antenna up and look for those signals as you're reading David's Psalms, as we see how David behaves through his um, succession to king kingship and the rebellions that come, how he handles this and 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 how his heart rolls, what he seeks. Does he seek violence? Is that his is that his plan A? You know, I think too that you got to see that he was he was definitely led by God, and his his heart, for the most part, was always in the right place. Um, you know, and when it did, he got to one point where he did go for violence. When you look at Nabal and Abigail, he was ready for violence. He got touched off in that point, and that's kind of a little bit ahead, and we'll get there, but. You know what? It, Abigail came and said, "Do you really want to do this? Are you She's sure this is what you want to?" One of my heroes. What a what a woman. Wow. You know. So I think, but you know, I I go back to what we said before. Every time that David was on and singing his psalms, that evil spirits couldn't be there because everything points towards God. Everything yeah. is like, look exactly what Satan is doing around us. But you know what? My God is still on the throne. Yeah, 59, Psalm 59. He's that's good. His. He's looking after you. You follow him, this is what will happen. And I can understand at this point why, you know what? Satan would flee from those words because, you know what? They were all praises for God. And that's where you see David's heart in all of these psalms. Yeah. Yeah, the recurring theme of Psalm 59 is deliver me from my enemies, be my fortress against those who are attacking me. Save me from those who are after my blood. Fierce men conspire against me for nothing that I have done wrong, right? And then the thing that he goes back to is, you are my strength. I watch for you. You, God, are my fortress on who I can rely. And he keeps coming back to that. Yeah, to our listeners, Psalm 11 and Psalm 59 were part of our reading uh, for this this section. Yeah, we're not just randomly picking those from thin air. (laughs) Yeah.
<laughs> yeah, so Paul, Psalm 59, like you say, he, he begins, he starts out, he's like, deliver me, defend me, save me. It's all this, it's all this constantly looking towards God. And the, con, the context of Psalm 59 is when Saul had sent men to David's house to kill him. And this is when Michael had let, helped him to escape. But David is just, he's there, you know, hiding at home and, and guys are coming to kill him. And he just immediately turns to God. You know, and that is interesting because David clearly has some skill here. He, you yep. know, he, he's able to fight. Yep. Um, and maybe he would have been able to handle these guys. I don't know. But, but he, he turns to God and, and, um, he's just like, I haven't done anything. I haven't done anything at, at all. And you get into verse nine. He says, "I will wait for you." And he calls God my strength. But he does say, "Let." He says, "Let me see my desire on my enemies." So God of mercy, my God of mercy, shall let me see my desire on my enemies. He he clearly isn't isn't wishing great things for his enemies. He he would sure. like to see his enemies punished. But then. Verse 11 is interesting. Don't kill them. Yeah. Scatter says, them. Go ahead. He says, let me gloat over those who slander me, but do not kill them, Lord, our shield, or my people will forget. Yeah. Yeah. It's like he wants, he wants to see, he recognizes that killing these guys, sure, it'll, it'll solve the immediate problem. Yeah. But by allowing them to live and everybody knowing the story of what happens. Yeah. Uh, it's almost like a greater testament to knowing that God is working for uh, working on David's behalf. Yeah, he says, "In your might, uproot them and bring them down. Then it mm -hmm. will be known to the ends of the earth that God rules over Jacob." Mm -hmm. See, that's really not that different than his fighting Goliath. He's like, "This is a point about God." That's what he's saying. This isn't a military thing. This is about God's reputation. Mm -hmm. Verse twelve stuck out to me too. Let their own words convict of their pride and cursing mm -hmm. and lying. I don't know if that's exactly the way it was written. That's the way I wrote it down in my notes. Yeah. But, um, let, you know, we don't need to, we don't need to spend a whole lot of time trying to tear down people we see as our enemies. If we, if they're acting poorly, if they're speaking stupid things, just let them talk and they'll bury themselves in, in their, Rhetoric. bad ideas in their rhetoric yeah. you know um there's no there's no need to just try to cancel everything that they're saying because they're good they will prove that in over time that that they're that they're just being foolish you know so as a as a female you know the lure of the rock star is ever present <laughs> and you know, women love a man who's in touch with his feelings enough to pour out his heart in music. And so now here we have a good looking sort of like, what, how did the Bible describe him glowing with health? Mm. And, you know, this sort of like good looking stud who can show up and he can take down a giant and he can play the harp and sing a song and everything else. It's no wonder Michael fell in love with him. But also, also, my kid, like one of my kids plays harp and the idea of this guy hauling a harp all over the wilderness <laughs> when I spent years moderating the temperature of the room so that that giant, expensive, fragile instrument could be at its shiny best just gives me just a tiny bit of heartburn. Like I picture <laughs> this thing strapped to his back 
with him like chasing down a bear and stuff like that. And, and I just like, maybe it's raining one day and then it's sunny the next. And I just, it just, oh, hmm. it hurts me somewhere deep, deep inside. <laughs> I never, I had never thought about that because I've helped for the listeners. I've helped like once I don't get much credit, move that harp with Karen and her, and her daughter. Um, and they're ridiculously light for how big they are. Totally, yeah. I was not seeing that coming. They're hollow. Um, but also, I never thought about that as a musical instrument. I guess I'd kind of figured that David had more of a um, department store guitar. <laughs> That's kind of how I slung <laughs> over. He, he might have. I'm just saying, my experience with harps, the two that yeah. two that my kid owned over the years, both required like I. I her harp teacher had a harp room where the doors always stayed closed and there was a humidifier and a thermostat and it was all very carefully monitored. And I was never quite that careful, but by the time you drop that many thousands of dollars on an instrument, you put some time into making sure that thing doesn't get mistreated. And the idea of strapping it to your back and running after a flock of sheep is not in that list of things that you can do with a harp. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Well, the psalm ends with, uh, I think it's a pretty powerful verse. To you, O my strength, I will sing praises, for God is my defense, my God of mercy. Just the idea to constantly turn to God and he, he strength through mercy. What a, it's just an interesting concept. You know, mercy towards, I guess, mercy towards the righteous, but also some mercy towards, there's a certain amount of mercy towards the wicked, but, um, but God is the defense. We're not our own defense. We don't, you know, we don't have to strap on a sword. We don't have to necessarily carry a gun. We don't have to do all these things. And which isn't to say that you can't do these things. It's not to say that there aren't times when that is appropriate. But ultimately, even if you have a weapon, God is the real defense there for you. If you, mm -hmm. if you yeah, we'll see that in a lot of David's Psalms. Yeah, yeah. And there, there's so much more than just, you know, the immediate life to be to be considered with all of this if we turn to God for our defense. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that will wrap it up for this week. Next week, we will continue in First Samuel. We will read chapters 21 through 24. So that'll be a little bit of a shorter reading. And the next week, we're going to get into we're going to camp in Psalms for a bit in a couple of weeks. But uh, next week we will read 1 Samuel 21 through 24. While you're waiting for that, you can reach out to us at attbpodcast at theadventure.org. Love to hear your questions or your comments. Be sure that you subscribe to us. Make sure that you look at Facebook. We're on there and follow us there. Make sure you subscribe so that uh, we can reach you in your feed each and every week. And we look forward to talking to you again next time. Thanks for listening.